Well, good day there. Welcome to Church Online. We haven't done this for a while. I might be a little bit rusty. Let's see how we go. The situation just is what it is. It's been up and down all week. We haven't quite known what to do there, but great to have a moment just to do a recording of a message and have it available to us all online. We'd love you to connect with us online, of course, via the website at kenmore.church forward slash connect. And you can fill in the connect card there and let us know that you visited in and we'd love to catch up with you in person. And so we've been motoring along now for uh, quite a few months in this thing called the story, which is all scripture, but not all of scripture. It's like a chronological walk through scripture. And we're, and we're up to the book of Judges. And Judges is an interesting moment in history. And you could sum it up in one verse, Judges 17, verse 6, where it says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what they wanted. That's what it's saying. They, they made their own idea of the rules. They said, this is what I think is right. This is what's acceptable to me. And we're just going to do that. There was no universal government. There was no uh, capital city of Israel. There were just territories where the tribes of Israel had come into the land. They'd come into the promised land, but the promised land hadn't quite come into them yet. And so they're just trying to settle, but, but they just didn't grasp it. They didn't quite get it. And so not only did they come into the land with Yahweh, but they decided to adopt all the gods of that land as well. And when I say gods, I say little G-gods, little idols. There was nothing behind them. But in their culture, they would uh, hedge their bets by, by having an idol to everything in their home. Just little ones that would stand on their mantelpiece and they'd talk to it or pray to it or offer sacrifices to it or something. And so this is long before there was any king. It's long before there was any real order in the land. And so even the tribes of Israel would, from time to time, fight against each other. They would go and take each other's land and, and do terrible things to each other. And it's quite a sorry tale if you read through the whole book of Judges and see what goes on there. But we see some great warriors raise up in that time. Samson, Deborah, who led their people. Uh, they were very faulted people. They, none of them were perfect. And scripture doesn't present them that way. And yet they did great deeds. And what, but we see this repetitive cycle happen for 330 years where the, the people of Israel would sin, uh, judgment of God would come down, uh, there would be repentance, then there'd be a judge rise up in deliverance, and then they'd go and do the whole thing again. So very frustrating for people in our position to watch this happen. But I want to zoom in straight to one character because I've got to choose one story, one moment in Judges. And so we're going to zoom into Judges chapter 6, and I want to introduce you to a man called Gideon. Because Gideon is so much a template for you and I these days. Because in our day, as I look out the window here, there's people really doing what they want. There's people who are deciding for, for themselves what is true, what is right, and what standards there should be. And so Gideon found himself in that same situation. But when we pick him up in Judges, we, we see him sort of hiding away in this sunken pit. They call it a wine press. It's like six, ten feet deep, uh, about 12, 15 feet around. It's made of stone. And they used to press their wine there, but he's trying to keep out of sight from these Midians who would come in in this season and take all uh, the grain. They would take uh, some of the people back as slaves. And it was a terribly oppressive, unfair, unjust situation. So he found himself in this pit now just threshing his grain because he doesn't want to be seen by the Midianites to have any of this stuff. So he's trying to hoard it away. But he's a frustrated man. Uh, you can just imagine he's a young guy. He's just full of beans. He's ready to go. But he's just so frustrated that uh, injustice is coming. And so he's questioning life. He's questioning God. Um, he, he's just, he's ready for something different and yet feels completely powerless in that to do anything about that. And so he's really living that half-life. But just before this moment in Judges chapter 6, a prophet had come and, and once again called the nation to repentance. And not much had happened this time. So it's almost like we see God shift gears. And it's the sort of gear shift I'd love to highlight because it's what I want to emphasize 
in our life today. Because many of us, when we're looking at the whole idea of God coming into our life, encountering God, having him do something miraculous or breakthrough in our life, we want him to visit us. We want him to do like what he did with that prophet, to, to come to town and, and make his word clear and declare what's going to happen. We want, him, we want a highlight reel. We want things to pop in. We want the end suddenly to happen. We call it a visitation. We want a visitation from God. Don't we all want that? We want God to come and just say, man, look at what he just did. That's unmistakably God. But God has come. God does come. God does do amazing things. And yet so often in our own life and in the community that we hope would see that, there doesn't seem to be too much change. And so now and again, it's almost like God says, I want to take this deeper. I want to go from visitation to habitation. And this is what life in the Holy Spirit really is all about. And this is a template for that in so many ways where he says it's not about the highlight reel, it's not just about the moments, they're great, but the emphasis is the habitation. The emphasis is God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. That's why Jesus died, so that God would be able to remain with us, each one of us, all the time, to go from visitation to a habitation. And so we pick it up in Judges 6, where God literally uh, initiates a conversation with Gideon. And it takes us through this whole process, and it's this process of visitation to habitation that I want to talk into. So the process starts where uh, God positions us, positions you and I, to host his presence. He takes us through a process that leads us into habitation. Let me read it out in Judges 6, verse 11, as he engages with Gideon. It says, The angel of the Lord came down and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abirizite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He said, God, I'm with you now. The Lord's with you. But, but the big point there is what he called Gideon. He said, mighty warrior. There's a wimp in a wine press now being called by God himself as a mighty warrior. And this is the initial moment when we start talking about how we begin to dwell with God in our life. What we've got to do is believe what God believes about himself and about us. We've got to take our identity, not from how we feel. Gideon felt like a wimp in a wine press. That was the narrative of his life. But God's introducing a new narrative. He's saying, hang on a sec. I'm with you and I see you as a mighty warrior. So God doesn't start by telling him to pick up his game and, and do what he's supposed to do. Um, he knows that Gideon on the inside is a, is a warrior. He's, he's full of fire and, and he's got the, got the skills, but he's believing this wrong narrative. You know, I am nothing. We are nothing. And he starts mirroring this back to God. There is no hope because I am nothing, because we are nothing. He's a typical conflicted leader. He's, a, he's, a typical, he's like all of us in that sense where we know what needs to be done. It doesn't take a genius to understand what's wrong with everything. And, and you know, so you'll see all the, the pasts on Facebook. Everyone believes they have the, the opinion that matters, you know, and so we, we feel obliged to, to share it out to everyone. But we wonder who's going to do it. And so we look to the government, we look to influence, we look, someone needs to get the job done. And Gideon's really got the same posture and saying, yeah, but someone has to get the job done. And God's really eyeballing him and saying, mighty warrior, it's you. It's you. And in your situation, it's probably you as well. He's calling you to be the influencer in that situation. So Gideon fires straight back with this wrong narrative. He says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's a sort of self-story that ensures failure. 
It's a sort of thing that we can rattle along in our head and we can feel justified doing it. But the logic sort of puts a hand up to God's logic and says, I'm not agreeing with uh, the way you think. But God doesn't really engage in those conversations because he doesn't agree with you. We can, we can tell these sort of false narratives all we, all we like, but God won't engage because he doesn't agree. If you want to get into a conversation with God, you better get in agreement and alignment with what he says about who you are and about how the life is. And so God literally ignores uh, Gideon's statement. But the first step in the process is for Gideon to believe what God believed about him. So that's step number one for this process of going from uh, a visitation to a habitation. Step number two is to believe God's promise. The first is to believe what he says about you. The second is to believe what he's promised you. He says, uh, I will be with you, ignoring what Gideon said about how God's let him down. God says, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. There's the promise. And Christians struggle at times to understand the promise. We, un we don't grasp the promises that God has made over our life. And because we don't believe who we are and we don't believe the promises in our life, then that narrative, that story keeps rattling around. So I wonder if you know God's promises over your life. 2 Peter 1.3 says he gives us all that we need for a godly life. Ephesians 3.30, he's able to do exceedingly more than you can ask or imagine. That's a good one. Whatever you can think of that you want God to do, he can do way more than that. Philippians 4.9, my God will meet all your needs according to his riches. Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. 2 Corinthians 9.8, you're getting happy about this yet. It says, God is able to bless you abundantly so you have all that you need and abound in all good works. So our role in that is to grasp those promises and they're right throughout scripture. Our role is to grasp them. Our role is not to make them happen. Our role is to believe them. Our role is to adopt them and say yes and amen. That's what Paul says in his epistle when he says, our role is to say yes to the promises because they're all yes and amen. God makes a promise, we agree. That's what that term means. We say, yes, Lord, amen, so be it. We bring ourselves into alignment with his promise. And so we've got to understand that regardless of what the odds, regardless of what the situation, one plus God is always a majority. And that one is you. You plus God is always a majority over whatever situation you're facing. Okay, so we believe who God says we are. We believe his promises in our life. This, this then leads us to the next step which is actually tearing down the idols that stand in the way. It says, God says to him, tear down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. He's saying, there's something you've got to do. There's a third step. You've got to believe who you are. You've got to believe God's promises, but don't stop there. You've got to make the big move then. Now you've got to start to tear down what you've allowed in your life to replace God. There's an overt act. There's something we need to do. There's a big step. There's a faith moment where we say, I'm making a stand here. I'm doing something about this. I'm not just going to sit back on my haunches and say, I believe. I'm going to let that belief compel me to do something. See, you can't always just believe it's going to happen. There's got to be a commitment on our part to purity. There's got to be a congruence in our actions about what we believe. What we, what we do has to line up with what we say and what we do believe. There needs to be purity about our life. There needs to be credibility about our life. There needs to be a zeal about our life. There needs to be a bit of fire in our belly, not just this passive thing that is Western Christianity. We need to tear down our altars, tear down our idols, materialism. You know, this drive to have and, and comfort, this drive to just never exert ourselves, but to find luxury in all that we do. 
You know, we've got to tear down these altars. We've got to make a move in our life, a deliberate move. We've got to do something. We've got to do something to tear down that which we have allowed to replace God. So we've got to understand that a compromised life leads to a compromised calling. A compromised life leads to a compromised calling. As you're calling in life, have you ever had that feeling where it's not what it should be? Have a look at your life. You don't earn the right to walk into that calling, but our compromise almost, it's like it disassembles that calling. It makes so much of it impossible because our life isn't aligning with the life God has called us into, which makes the calling possible. But he doesn't just call us to tear down altars. He doesn't just call us to repent in the sense of, I'm going to put something off. Repentance truly is pulling something off, putting something else on. And so he says, tear down the altar and put up a proper altar. Put up a real altar in your life. Make a real altar that represents uh, and really forces you in some way to conform your life to the image of Christ. Do something about it. Build something positive and proactive. A non-passive demonstration of faith. And so we need to build our life. We need to build our home. We need to build our routine. We need to build our career around what we know matters. We can't just say we believe and then commit ourselves to compromise. He's saying, now do something proactive. Take a step and build your life, form it, so that it can house this promise. And so it means we put our devotion to God before our exercise. It means we create space and time for worship. It means we get baptised if we're not baptised. It means we contribute sacrificially to the kingdom work of God. We need to be proactive. We need to do something in there. Again, it's not earning God's favour. It's making way for it. It's creating a form of our life in which God can fill. These get it out there moments like that. They're really a sign of personal renewal. It's hard not to uh, have God fill you with his spirit and not respond in these radical ways. And this is a process that positions us to host his presence. So we believe who God says that we are. We believe his promises. We tear down our altars and we put a proper altar. We structure our life to conform to the image of Christ. But then this hosting of the presence, this habitation, if it's really there, that fire of God that that baptised them all in Acts chapter 2, if that's really there in our life, that presence of God will project you into a predicament. The presence will project you into a predicament. certainly did for uh, Deborah, for Samson, and it did for Gideon as well. You know, when you're full of the word of God, you can't help but look for trouble. And it's never too far away. There's trouble everywhere. But when you're full of the Holy Spirit, you go looking for it and you determine to do something about it. But when you're half-hearted in your faith, you won't jump towards a courageous call. Uh, If insecurity drives your agenda, you won't risk it all when God gives you a, a huge leap of faith to navigate. You see, only little David, before he was king, saw Goliath as an opportunity, but he was full of that fire of God. Only Simon Peter was saw walking on water as a potential upgrade to his faith. Only, only the disciples saw death threats as an opportunity for boldness instead of going cold. And only Gideon came across 200,000 Midianites. That's a conservative estimate, the theologians say, and looked at those odds against the 30,000 soldiers that he could summon and say that six to one odds is too short. I need to make this even harder. Only the fullness of the Spirit will compel you to take leaps of faith like that. So it's God's presence will project you into those predicaments. It will literally, you'll just go and find them and they'll find you. But then the predicament is the opportunity to demonstrate God's power. 
So you need to actually be in harm's way uh, for the power of God to present itself. You need to actually need it. That's what faith is all about, a reliance on him, reliance on his word, reliance on his character and reliance on his power. And so to rely on him, you need to be in the situation that forces you to rely. You can't store it up. It gets downloaded in real time. Uh, that's, that's why we need faith. Uh, he gives you words when you need them. He gives you faith when you need them. He gives you uh, wisdom in real time. And to make this point for Gideon, he took him into a battle with the Midianites who'd heard what he was about and they came up against him. 200,000 plus soldiers. And all he could summon in Israel was 30,000. But he had to whittle that down and God said there's too many because even that 30,000, those odds there are six to one against. So this, it's, it's too short. I need to make the odds ridiculously long so no one can say we did it in our own strength. Because these predicaments, these, this opportunity for God's power requires it to be obvious that only God could come through. So he whittles it down from th uh, 32,000, I think it was, down to 300. Those odds then against the Midianites in this battle that was coming was 666 to 1. So for every single soldier they had to kill, if it, they were going to do it in their own strength, 666 other men. There was just no way known that could ever happen. And so we need to realise right there that it's, only, it's God plus uh, 300 is a majority against 200,000. So I wonder what army you're facing. Gideon had to face this army. He had to whittle the crowd down. He had to thin the crowd down. So it was obvious only God was going to come through. You're probably in a situation now or, or have been or are about to walk into one where you're not enough. You can't do it on your own. But to precede that, it behoves us to create in our life a habitation of God, to host his presence by building an altar to him with our life, with our worship and our time and our money and our sacrifice of, of effort and so on. To build that habitation. And then when we do, go looking for that trouble, not waiting and cringing away, hoping it'll never come to us, being a wimp in a wine press. Saying, no, I'm full of God's promise. I'm full of his identity. I'm full of his spirit. And I'm going after this thing. And God is going to be the one who gets the glory. I wonder what it is in your life. Can you rely on God at that moment and build the habitation that you need? Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for each one who's tuned in today. I pray that you would bless them. I pray you'd grant them great faith. I pray that you would demonstrate your power and show the world who really is God. Amen. Bless you now. See you soon.